0: Today we are reading from Mark 16, verses 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices, so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. Happy Easter. Happy Resurrection
1: Sunday. Good to have you with us. God bless you. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. I also want to welcome those of you that are on YouTube live right now. Thank you for joining us. God's Amazing Promises, it's a brand new teaching series kicking off this weekend. It'll take us all the way into the summer months. And we're going to talk about God's Amazing Promises as it relates to the resurrection. If you have your sermon notes, grab them out. You can follow along. And we'll begin by talking about this idea of the crucifixion and resurrection. The crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ is more than historical, evidential, and factual. It can and should be a daily reality. We'll look at the, the reality of that in our lives. We're going to apply that text that we just read to our lives. What are the implications of, of the resurrection? Now, here's the gospel. It's on your notes. You need to know what the gospel is. A lot of people don't know what the gospel is. Here's the gospel. The gospel is the good news of the true story that the God of the galaxies came to earth And through his life, death, and resurrection, what did he do? He conquered sin, death, and evil. And therefore, all who repent and believe in him can experience a fullness of life and innumerable amazing promises beyond our wildest dreams, beyond our wildest dreams. Let me start with a story here I came across a number of years ago. It's a honeymoon disaster. And... uh, the, the newlyweds arrived at the hotel in the wee hours with high hopes. They'd reserved a large room with romantic amenities, that's not what they found. Seems the room was pretty skimpy. The tiny room had no view, no flowers, a cramped bathroom, and worst of all, no bed. Just a fold out sofa with a lumpy mattress and sagging springs. It was not what they had hoped for, consequently, neither was the night. The next morning, the sore-necked groom stormed down to the manager's desk and ventilated his anger. After listening patiently for a few minutes, the clerk asked, did you open the door in your room? The groom admitted he hadn't. He returned to the suite and opened the door he had thought was a closet. There, complete with fruit baskets, chocolates, was a spacious bedroom deep sigh. I mean, can't you see them standing in the doorway of the room they overlooked? Oh, it would have been nice, a comfortable bed instead of a clumpy sofa, a curtain-framed window rather than a blank wall, a fresh breeze in place of stuffy air, an elaborate bathroom, a restroom, not a tight toilet. But they missed it. How sad cramped, cranky, and uncomfortable, while comfort was a door away. They missed it because they thought the door was a closet. Now, when I read that story, I started thinking about people that I know, and I wonder how many people think Christianity is a door to a closet. And then I thought more about those of us that profess faith in Christ have committed our life to Christ. I wonder how many Christians are living their lives cramped, cranky, and uncomfortable, while the comfort of God's innumerable promises are a door away. That's what this whole series is about. God's amazing promises. It's based on a couple of verses here. Here's the first one. It's on your notes. It'll also be up on the screen behind me. 2 Peter 1:4. Listen to what it says. He has granted to us his precious and very great promises. Precious meaning really, really valuable. So precious and very great promises. Why? So that through them you may become partakers of his divine nature? What? That's incredible so that we may become partakers of his divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. This is how I would put it. This is my understanding of it, is that God's amazing promises guarantee us that God's presence working in us and and through us and around us are greater than all the sin and suffering that we will ever face in this world. That's what he's promising here through his amazing promises. Here's another verse that I I built this whole series on. It's found in Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is the largest chapter in the Bible. Psalms is the largest book in the Bible. And the largest chapter in the Bible is all about God's word. Listen to what he says here. I rejoice in your promise. He's referring to God's book, the Bible, as promise. But we know that it's packed full of promises. And so, I rejoice in your promises like one who finds great spoil. I'm telling you, these promises are a treasure trove. And when you begin to understand his promises, you'll see that they they apply to every aspect of our lives. And, and so what we did on Good Friday is that we looked at, and you'll see on your notes, you've already got on the left side of the of the column, so to speak, or of the page, we've already got it written in, the promises as they relate to the crucifixion. So if you missed that weekend, we've already got the notes for you there. I'm just going to make reference to that, but we're going to spend most of our time on the right side of the column, on the resurrection. And and so you'll see the the promises, uh, God's amazing promises as it relates to not just the crucifixion, but also the resurrection. Let's dive into this. And so as it relates to the crucifixion, Christ claimed to be God, that's Filled in for you, but here's your fill in the blank. The resurrection backed up the claim. Backed up the claim. Now, let let me build kind of a case. Let me kind of walk you through a process here. I want you to think deeply about this. In our pluralistic world, there is an all roads lead to God kind of mindset. And that all religions are fundamentally the same with just superficial differences. And it, it goes like this picture God. At the top of the mountain, in all religions of mankind, or at the bottom of the mountain, and Christians may take one path up the mountain, and then Muslims may take another path, and Mormons and Christian science and Jehovah Witnesses all take different paths up the mountain, but in the end, we all get to the top of the mountain where God is. That's not what the Bible says. That's not true, in fact, but a lot of people believe that. In fact, the Bible actually tells us that the God at the top of the mountain didn't wait for us to find our way to him. He actually came down to where we are to redeem us, to rescue us. We don't know God by human speculation, by trying to find our way up the mountain, but we know God by divine revelation. How do we know there is a God? Because he's revealed himself to us. How has he revealed himself to us? Through creation, conscience, commandments. He wrote a book, it's called the Bible, and ultimately he revealed himself to us through Christ Jesus. He showed up here. He came from heaven to earth to redeem us, to rescue us, and that is the fundamental difference between Christianity and all other religions. In fact, in Matthew 16, remember, Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say I am? And they came up with a whole list of ideas of who they thought Jesus was, just as we see in our day and time today, even among most of the major cults and religions of our world today. And then he turned to his disciples and says, but who do you say I am? And Peter, I think one of the few times he speaks very profoundly, poor Peter, he tended to put his foot in his mouth. I can relate really well to him. I like Peter. But Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You're God in human flesh come down to rescue us. And in fact, Jesus says to him, Peter, you didn't come up with that on your own because you're not that smart. He didn't actually say that, but you kind of get the idea because he said flesh and blood did not reveal that to you. It's not by human speculation you came up with that, but it's by divine revelation. My father revealed that to you. And then he goes on, he says, and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. What's the rock? The rock is Christ, but our profession of faith in Christ. And he says that I will build my church, an unstoppable force on this planet Earth, that proclaim me, that look to me, that trust in me, that believe in me, and I will build a church that will be so powerful, there will be a powerful force that the gates of hell will not prevail against them. And so he goes on in that uh, dialogue with his disciples and he explains that for that to happen, I must die and on the third day, I must resurrect from the grave. Guaranteeing that hey, what I'm saying, what I came to do, it's for real and I will prove it through my resurrection. How do we know that the resurrection actually happened? Well, there's evidence, there's plenty of evidence. The evidence is overwhelming. In fact, you got the empty tomb, you've got eyewitness accounts which All the New Testament is really based on eyewitness accounts. And then you've got the explosion of the first century church. It was out of control, proclaiming the gospel of our Savior, this resurrected Christ Jesus. And many of those people gave their life proclaiming the resurrected Christ Jesus. And those are just a few of the pieces of evidence, along with the fact that over 2,000 years later, 2.3 billion people on this planet right now claim to follow the resurrected Savior. The church is an unstoppable force. So what's the promise here? Well, here's the promise. If Jesus rose from the dead, he proved to be who he said he is, and it would be crazy not to follow him and become a part of his church against which the gates of hell will not prevail. So what does that mean, the gates of hell won't prevail? Here's what it means. Whatever the capacity there is for human sin and suffering, the church has a greater capacity through the gospel for hope, healing, in wholeness. That's what he's saying. That's what, what we understand that to mean. Now, here's the next one. So, the crucifixion is the greatest symbol of his love. The resurrection is the greatest symbol of his power. That's your next fill in the blank. So, it's the greatest symbol of his love. No pleasure on earth compares to knowing and experiencing God's love. Did you guys hear that? Do you understand that? I don't think most people understand that. There's no pleasure on earth that compares to knowing and experiencing God's love. Think of the best pleasures you've had on this earth. It doesn't come close to the Pleasure of knowing and experiencing the love of God. And if you doubt that, it's probably because you've never experienced it. But I'm telling you, it's out of this world. And notice also the resurrection is the is the greatest symbol of his power. Listen to what he says here. These are amazing verses. I think about these pretty regularly, this particular verse, but Romans 8:11, particularly, I think about this on a weekend like this, resurrection weekend. It says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. What? He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. What's the promise here? His power in us is greater than any hardship, suffering, difficulty, persecution, betrayal, or criticism we will ever face in this life. In other words, God's power will enable you to be what he wants you to be, to do what he wants you to do. Whatever you're facing, you have his power in you that's greater than anything that you'll ever face in life. That's what he's talking about here. Here's the next one. The crucifixion tells us that God is just. The resurrection tells us that he is justifier. So God is just and justifier. That's your next fill in the blank. Look at Romans 3.26. Well, you can't look at it. I'm looking at it. So I'll share it with you. Here it is. Romans 3.26. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, talking about death, burial, resurrection, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, there are people that would struggle with the exclusivity of the gospel or the exclusivity of Christianity. And, and I've been asked these kind of questions many times. Um, are you saying that anybody that doesn't believe just like you is going to hell? That would be a question that I've been asked. Or it would go something like this. I'm basically a good person, and I try to live a good life. Why do I need Jesus? Those are great questions, by the way. Maybe you're here this weekend, and you're asking those questions. We have a lot of people that come in here that don't know Christ. They're kicking tires, trying to figure out what this Christianity is all about. I welcome you. And those are really great questions. So let me ask you a couple questions here. Here's the first one. Do you think that people who commit moral crimes ought to be punished? What are you guys saying? Okay, just a couple of you? That's frightening. Should people who do bad things have to pay for doing those bad things? Yeah, okay, there's more of you. Most people would say yes, no one should ever get away with doing wrong. Here's my second question Have you ever done anything wrong? Have you ever done any wrong things? Most people who are in touch with reality would say yes, unless you're narcissistic. I know a few of those. They're not fun to be around. And, and so most people would, that are in touch with reality would say yes, and so, so have I done things wrong. So has everyone on this planet, everyone on this planet have done things wrong. And that's bad news for all of us. We all deserve to be punished for our sins. The Bible says in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. So before the cross, there's no moral high ground. All of us stand equal before the cross, all in desperate need of a Savior. In fact, it tells us in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. We all deserve eternal separation from God. Yes, God is that holy, and yes, we are that sinful. And the Bible's really, really clear about that. And there's not a thing we can do to bridge the gap that separates us from God. That's how desperate it is. There's not a thing we can do to bridge the gap that separates us from God. We all deserve to be eternally separated from God. Which, by the way, that's called hell. And that's, that's the condition that we are in. And so we all deserve to be punished for our sins. That would be just. And, and in fact, from time to time, people will think, well, maybe, you know, Maybe I'll just try and reconcile myself to God by good works. That would be like trying to broad jump the Grand Canyon, okay? It's an impossibility. You don't understand. You don't understand your dire condition without Christ. And, and, but when you understand it, when you see your dire condition, this is what makes grace amazing, The reason why grace isn't amazing for folks oftentimes and they don't have this indescribable, indestructible joy that comes from that is because they don't understand their dire condition apart from Christ. We are doomed. Yes, we were so sinful, Jesus had to die for us. There was no other way for us to be reconciled to the Father. And yet at the same time, we were so loved, he wanted to die for us. And that's the good news. So there's really, really bad news. See, the good news isn't good news until you really understand the bad news. The bad news is that we're desperate. We're in this dire condition of being eternally separated from God, and there's not a thing we can do about it. And yet, the good news God offers us a pardon. In fact, here's the promise the judge of the universe got off the bench and took off his robe and got into the dock and took the punishment for our sins so that we could be set free. That's amazing. That's absolutely amazing. So God is not only just, but also our justifier. Romans 3.26, the verse that we just read. It's called substitutionary atonement. I know that sounds like a couple big words, substitutionary atonement. See, that's what those that are making a a declaration of their faith in Christ this weekend are doing. They're identifying with the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. The word atonement basically means at one, at one, meant is a state of being. So you have this state of being being at one with the Father. You've been reconciled to the Father because of what Christ has done for you. Substitutionary atonement. He died in your place for your sins. He lived the life we should have lived. He died the death we should have died in our place. We put our faith in Him, and we have substitutionary atonement. Powerful, profound, amazing. It's out of this world. Jesus is the only way because he is the only one who has solved the sin problem. No one else could do this. Only Jesus could do that. In fact, here's the next, next couple fill-in-the-blanks, or the next fill-in-the-blank, that he took on the wrath of God, God's wrath on him, the crucifixion. If you've ever watched The Passion, uh, on Good Friday, we showed a, cl- a clip from The Passion movie. It's sickening. It was, just a, it was about two and a half minutes. It'll make you sick just to watch two and a half minutes of it. Why is it so ugly? Because that's our sin. That's the wrath of God upon the Son that we deserved. God's wrath was on Him, but guess what? God's favor on us. That's the resurrection. First John two two. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the for the sins of the whole world. This is available to everybody on the planet for the whole world. It says it right there. Propitiation is an interesting word. The Greek New Testament was written in a Koine Greek, everyday Greek language. Um, That was the original text, by the way. A lot of people think that the Bible has been passed on from generation to generation. It's lost its meaning in translation. No, we go right back to the original, to the Greek. And that Greek is a sacrifice that bears God's wrath and turns it to favor. How's that? Well, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 talk about God's favor. He says, for it is by grace. When you think of grace, think of unmerited favor, unearned favor. You have the favor of God. So by grace, you have been saved. We are reconciled to God. We can go to heaven. We can have the presence of God in our life through faith. We put our faith in Jesus. And this is not of yourselves. It is a gift from God. So grace is a gift. His favor on us is a gift. It can be earned. Not by works, so that no one can boast. Can you imagine if you, if you somehow earned your salvation? Can you imagine what heaven would be like if you earned your salvation? A lot of bragging going on in heaven. What did you do to get here? That would be horrible. Oh, my goodness. It would sound like earth. It would sound like hell. That would be more like hell, everybody bragging about how great they are. Well, what did you do to get here? Oh, boy. We couldn't do a thing. He did it for us. That's by his favor. Here's the promise. Jesus took what we deserve, God's wrath and judgment, so that we can have what Jesus deserves, God's favor forever. What is this idea of God's favor anyway? I was thinking about this. I'm a grandfather. I think of grandparents and how, how our faces shine when we see our grandkids. Not so much with our kids, but just our grandkids. Okay. <laughs> I'm kidding. I, I, my, my face, hopefully, it shines with my kids too. But those grandkids, any grandparents in the house? You guys know what I'm talking about? Woo! you rejoice yeah you adore them you love them that's what it means God's favor we show favor to them we fill them up with candy and send them back home to their parents <laughs> favor yeah it's that favor that if you're familiar with the ironic blessing found in Numbers 6 where it says the Lord bless you and keep your Lord and make his face to shine upon you he delights in us he rejoices over us He loves us. He adores us. Jesus got the wrath of God. We get the favor of God through his crucifixion and resurrection. Absolutely amazing. It's breathtaking. It will change your life. Nothing will change your life like that. And then here's the next one. To forgive our sins. Crucifixion. He forgave my sins. Resurrection. He gives me power over sin. And so... Romans eight one. it says there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. We talked about that on Good Friday. So he will never ever ever hold your sins against you. But it goes beyond that. He gives us power over sin. That's Romans 8, 2 and 4, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. There's almost kind of this law in us. It's, we have this sinful nature, but there's a greater law, so to speak, a greater power that works in our lives because we have the indwelling Holy Spirit. In fact, he goes on in verse 4, he says, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. So the crucifixion, he set me free from the penalty of sin. That's called justification. The resurrection, he has set me me free from the power of sin, which is sanctification. So let me talk a little bit about sin here just for a moment. Sin is, is what you do when you're not satisfied with God. Sin is what you do when you're not satisfied with God. No one sins because they have to. They do it because they want to. And we sin because it holds out some promise of happiness. We don't follow the Savior because we think that following sin will make us happier. That's why we do it. That's why we sin. We actually are convinced that we're going to be happier by following sin. And in fact, that promise that sin holds out enslaves us until we realize, until we realize that Christ is more desirable and satisfying than anything in this world. You see, this idea of holiness is a very attractive thing. When the Bible says that God wants to make us holy, he's holy, therefore he wants us to be holy. Holiness is being so happy in Christ that sin loses its appeal. You begin to look at the things of the world, and you go, why would I chase that when I can pursue him and find more satisfaction than I ever dreamed I would experience in Christ Jesus? That's the gospel. So here's, here's the promise. The promise in this idea that he gives, us, gives me power over sin, and that is the power of sin's promise is always broken by the power of God's promise. The reason why we chase sin, once again, is we think we're not, it's because we're not finding our satisfaction in Christ. I'm just telling you, I, I just want you to know that there's nothing in this world that can satisfy you like Jesus. Amen. And if you think otherwise, it's because maybe you've never had a taste of what he's all about or really understand what he's all about, or you've been duped. You've been deceived. I'll talk a little bit more about that as we work through these notes. But uh, God is not a restrictor. God is not a restrictor. He's a liberator. And you'll never be more free in your life than when you are fully devoted to him, when you follow him and you pursue him and you make him the, the center of your life. You give your life to him. I mean, I look at people chasing all kinds of crazy stuff in this world. And I know, ultimately, that's not going to satisfy them. Yeah, maybe temporarily, in a temporary way. But in in the long run, it's not. Nothing like how Jesus can satisfy us. So he gives us power over sin. Here's the next one. He reconciled by his death. We're reconciled by his death. That's the crucifixion. We're saved by his life. That's the resurrection. Listen to Romans (laughs) 5.10. I love this verse. Take verses like this and just meditate on them throughout the day and let them light up your heart. It'll change you. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son much more. He's kind of doing this comparison contrasting. Much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. So here's the promise. If while we were his enemies, we were traitors guilty of high treason against a holy God, we were his enemies. We were at enmity with God. So it tells us that in Romans 8. So, so if while we were his enemies, he made us his beloved family through the crucifixion resurrection, how much more now that we are his family will we experience total fulfillment and complete well-being? How much more will we be blessed? That's the point that he's making. Now, the word blessed, oftentimes we kind of throw that around. I actually... Uh, when I say, God bless you, this is what I mean by, behind that. It's just not some little sprinkling gold dust on people like, oh, okay, God bless you. Like, No, no. The word blessed means total fulfillment complete well-being. And, and if while you were an enemy, he reconciled, he brought you into his family, how much more now that you're his family, is he going to bless you? Total fulfillment, complete well-being. Unlike you've ever experienced before. I'm talking like a guy that's experienced it, and I experience it regularly, consistently in my life. It's out of this world. There's nothing better than what he offers us. That's how much he wants to bless us. It's, it's absolutely amazing. And, and so the next one, he conquered death, and he gives life. We could say eternal death and, and eternal life, because that's really what he's, he's talking about here. All of us are going to live eternally. We're We're eternal beings. And it's either eternal life or eternal death. It's either eternal celebration with God or eternal separation from God. There's no other choices. Those are the two choices you have. And, and so he conquered eternal death so that he could give us eternal life. John eleven twenty five 25 through 26, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. That sounds odd. He's going to die and yet he's going to live. What does that mean? Well, physically we're going to all die, but death for a believer is just like falling asleep because that's what he says. He talks about Lazarus. Oh, he's just asleep right now. So how many like taking Sunday afternoon naps? Those are a lot of fun. He's saying that's what death is for us as a believer. We just kind of fall asleep and we wake up in the arms of our Savior. Whoever believes in me, though he die, he shall live, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? So here's the promise. We have no fear of eternal death. In fact, the moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you go from eternal death to eternal life because through the crucifixion, he's conquered eternal death. Through the resurrection, he gives us eternal life. Another interesting story here. George Wilson was sentenced to hang after he was convicted of killing a guard while robbing a federal payroll from a train. This happened back in 1833. Public sentiment against capital punishment led to an eventual pardon by President Andrew Jackson. Unbelievably, Wilson refused to accept the pardon. Can you do that? The case became so confusing that the Supreme Court was called on to bring about a ruling. Chief Justice John Marshall delivered the verdict And I quote, a pardon is a parchment whose only value must be determined by the receiver of the pardon. It has no value apart from that which the receiver gives it. George Wilson has refused to accept the pardon. We cannot conceive why he would do so, but he has. Therefore, George Wilson must die. End of quote. Consequently, Wilson was hanged. God's grace becomes a pardon from sin only to those who receive it. I would say the same thing about those of you that refuse the pardon that comes to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. That is folly of infinite and eternal ramifications. That doesn't make sense, that you would reject the pardon that comes to us through Jesus Christ. That's what He's offering us. Do you know that? Through the... Crucifixion and resurrection, he's offering us a pardon. He's offering us to go from eternal death to eternal life. And it's a gift. It's a gift. And I'm telling you, when you receive that gift, it changes everything about you. You begin to live differently because you want to live your life in such a way that it honors him. It's out of this world. Here's the next one. He conquered Satan. Conquered Satan, Colossians 2.15 talks about that. And then he gives us power over Satan. So the crucifixion conquered Satan. Resurrection gives us power over Satan. Tells us in first John 4 4, greater is he that is Jesus in us then he that is in the world. That is Satan. Satan has no power over us as believers except the power we give to him. If you're not a believer, he's already working in your life and has your life under his control. That's a fact. That's what the Bible says. We give Satan power over us when we believe his lies. He is the father of lies, John 8, 44. Lies bring bondage. Truth brings freedom. How do I know that I'm under his bondage? You have a lot of inordinate anxiety and anger and bitterness and depression. Setting aside any physiological contributions, of course, because I'm telling you the truth brings freedom. It brings love and joy and peace and fullness of life unlike you've ever experienced. doesn't mean you don't have anxiety and anger and um, and some sadness, but it's not inordinate. It's not working and controlling your life and overtaking your life. You don't have to live that way. God has made us emotional beings. Yeah, we respond to life and it's appropriate, but when they take control of our lives, it's because we're living under the lies of the enemy rather than the truth that he came to give to us and so the promise here is that your greatest defense against the lies of Satan in your head is the rehearsal of God's word, the truth, in your heart. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, here's the biggest lie right here. I've got to keep rolling here because we've got some baptisms to do in just a moment. So I'll knock out the rest of this pretty quickly. But here's the biggest lie right here. If he can't get you to doubt God's existence, he's going to get you to doubt God's goodness. And he works in two ways. I see people defect from the faith oftentimes because they are deceived by the pleasures of life. That's a lie from the enemy. Somehow you're going to be happier by chasing the things of this world, the created things over and above the creator? That's insane. You're being duped. You think that somehow God's holding out on you? Here's another way that he, uh, he gets into our head. is that not only are we deceived by the pleasures of life, we become disillusioned by the pain and the problems of life. We think that somehow God's holding out on us. Where are you in all this problems and all the difficulties I'm facing. Listen, the cross proves to you, if he didn't spare his own son and taking care of your worst problem, and that was your eternal separation from him, he's not going to spare anything else in taking care of you. Romans 8, 31 and 32, if God is for us, who can be against us? See, those are lies of the enemy. And when he gets those lies in us, they control us, creating all sorts of fear and anxiety and anger and bitterness, and they work in our lives Here's the next one. He became poor. Through the crucifixion, he became poor so that we might become rich. Resurrection. These are two of my, it's hard to say because I have a lot of favorite verses. I probably say that every weekend around here, don't I? But these are two of my favorite verses. Okay. I think every week I say that. Okay, 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, so that through his poverty we might become rich. Okay, what is the richness that we experience? 2 Corinthians 9, 8, God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. What is that? Well, here's the promise. We are rich beyond the world's greatest billionaire. We have his presence, power, and peace that all the money in this world can't buy. That's what he's talking about. And then the next, the old has passed away, and the new has come. Crucifixion, the old has passed away, resurrection, the new has come. 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, the old, uh, behold, the new has come. In fact, when you watch these baptisms in a few moments, is that one of the things that I say, as they go down under the water, we say the old has passed away, and they come up out of the water, the new has come. The old has passed away, the new has come. Brand new sense of identity. Here's the promise My identity is no longer what I have done, my past sins, or what has been done to me, those sins committed against me, but my new identity is what Christ has once and for all done for me through the cross of Jesus Christ. I am forgiven, reconciled, adopted into his family, lavished with his love, empowered by his Holy Spirit, guaranteed a place in heaven. I am redeemed, crucifixion, I am redeemed, resurrection, I am regenerated, that's your next fill in the blank. First Peter, one eighteen through nineteen. I have been liberated by the blood of Jesus. What can wash away my sin? That's right. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. We're gonna to have to work on that one, okay? You to sound a little weak there, but that's okay. You gave it a good shot there. First Peter one twenty three talks about being born again. So when we put our faith in Christ, we are born again. So the Christian life is not a morally restrained will motivated by fear and pride. It's a supernaturally transformed heart smitten by the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is and what he's done for you. It's an inside-out transformation, not an outside-in. And so I am regenerated. Here's the next one. I can become a Christian. Crucifixion, I can become a Christian. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. I can become like Christ, Ephesians 5, 1 through 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Here's the promise. The more we focus on being with Christ and all that Christ has done for us, the more we will become like Christ and walk in love, joy, and peace. Here's the last one right here. It's a one-time decision. When we look at the crucifixion, we commit our life to him. If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. So it's a one-time decision. But living for him, it's a daily decision. Romans 12, 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So here's the deal. Man, when you understand what he's done for you, of course you're going to give your life to him, but it's going to be more than that. You're going to live your life for him. So let me ask you this. Most important question I can ask you. Have you committed your life to Christ? Do you know who he is? Have you given your life to him? Are you following him? Are you committed to him? Have you become a Christian? So how do I do that, Pastor Ray? It's, it's like this. You acknowledge that your sin separates you from God and there's not a thing you can do to bridge the gap that separates you from God. Not a thing you can do about it. But guess what? Good news, he's done it for you. So you accept the fact that your sin separates you from God. You believe that Christ died on the cross for your sins and then you confess him as Lord and Savior. You give your life to him. Those that are getting dunked here this morning, getting baptized, probably shouldn't call it dunked, huh? Yeah, we dunk people over there at Desert Breeze. And we try to hold you under long enough to get rid of all that sin in your life. Well, we don't do that. Okay. I kind of blew the whole moment right there. This whole idea of baptism. No, it's a little bit more sacred than what I just explained. Okay. You guys know that. So God, so, so where was I? Yeah. Yeah you got to accept Jesus. Believe in him. Commit your life to him. Acknowledge your sin. Believe that he died on the cross for your sins. You confess him as Savior and Lord. Now, here's the major difference between every major cult and religion of our world today and Christianity. Every major religion will give you a list of things you need to do to be saved. The good are in, the bad are out. You hit the list, you're in. You're one of us. That's not Christianity. Here's Christianity. It's not the good are in, the bad are out. Listen to me. It's the humble are in and the proud are out. All you need is need. You recognize that I, am, I was so sinful, Jesus had to die for me, but I was so loved, he wanted to die for me. Do you hear me? And when you begin to understand that and you see that, it gets, gets a hold of your heart and you say, yes, I'm in. Please, Lord, I humble myself before you. I need you. I want you in my life. I believe that Christianity is the most inclusive belief system on the planet. It's available to everybody. All you need to do is humble yourself and give your life to him this morning. You can do that right now as I pray, and we're going to get our hearts ready as we baptize a few folks here this morning. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. Father God, we are forever and infinitely grateful for your amazing promises we have through the crucifixion and resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And right now, Lord, I know that there are people here maybe that have never made a confession of faith. I pray that they would do that now as we pray. We acknowledge our sins that separate us from you. If you've never done that, just do it right now. Just open up your heart to God. We acknowledge our sins that separate us from you, God. There's nothing we can do to bridge the gap. So we believe that Jesus died in our place for our sins, resurrected on the third day, proving that claim, guaranteeing that, that he truly is God He came to die for us. We confess him as our Savior and Lord. Lord, we give our life to him. We want to live our lives for him. We pray for those who are now making a public declaration of their faith in Jesus Christ through water baptism. May this be a defining moment in each of their lives that they would look back with very powerful and joyful memories. All for your glory. In Jesus' beautiful name. And everyone said, Amen. amen. So now we're going to do a little bit more partying. So here's what we do traditionally at the very end. We celebrate the beauty and the glory of our King and our Savior. And on this weekend, the resurrection, would you stand with me? We're going to do a big yay, God, on the count of three. We're going to blow the roof off this place because we're celebrating fullness of life that Christ came to give to each one of us. And by the way, next week, as we continue this teaching series, I'm going to talk about God's amazing promises for our personal peace, If you're struggling in your life uh, or there will be a time you're struggling, we're going to talk about how we can have his personal peace in our life, even in these chaotic times that we live in. So come back next weekend as we talk about that. On the count of three, you can say, Yay, God, praise God for all that you've seen here. This is one of the greatest miracles of all, and that's people making a confession of faith uh, in Jesus Christ and all that he's done for us. So here we go. One, two, three. Yay, God. Praise God.